Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This podcast is supported by Blue Handle Publishing. This locally owned indie publisher doesn't just have several great titles available by local authors, including Charles D'Amico and Andrew Brandt. It has also introduced its new Book Puma editing services platform, an industry-changing approach designed to help authors refine their manuscripts and reinvent the way authors and editors interact. And as a former author, I think this is a fabulous idea. Book Puma offers a full menu of developmental services from a team of professionals. It was even featured this year in Publishers Weekly. You can learn more about Book Puma and Blue Handle Publishing at bluehandlepublishing.com. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I also want to give a podcast shout out to Suzanne Wheeler with Mariner Financial Advisors, also a former guest on this podcast, and to cosmetic and reconstructive surgeon, Dr. Paul Proffer of Proffer Surgical Associates, online at drproffer.com. Today's guest is Helen Burton. I actually met Helen back in August when I interviewed her for Brick and Elm, uh, my magazine. And that was an interview for print, um, and she was great. We were doing a cover story about growing up in the Barrio neighborhood, and that's part of Helen's story. Well, she made an excellent interview subject, but I knew I wanted to hear more from her, not just about her childhood, but about her career today and the work she continues to do as a leadership consultant and a small business owner. She's the owner of Burton Insurance, as well as Burton Leadership Solutions, and In 2019, she received the Hispanic Woman of the Year Award given out at that year's Hispanic Heritage Luncheon. So this is a really fun conversation. Here's Helen Burton. Helen Burton, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me, Jason. Well, it's an honor to have you. I I know we've talked uh, in the past about me wanting to get you on the podcast, so I'm, I'm glad that we finally arrived at that point. And I know that we've got a lot of things we can talk about because you're involved in so many different things. Uh, but I want to start with you, like I do with every guest, and just ask, like, why are you here? How did you end up in Amarillo in the first place? Okay. Uh, yeah. So I was born and raised here in Amarillo. I was uh, born to a, you know, family in the heart of Amarillo, the barrio. Okay. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of emphasis being put on the barrio right now. So that's exciting to me. I grew up, um, lived on Houston Street, and then we moved to Garfield. Um, uh, that, the house has been there for 54 years. So, you know, grew up in a Catholic family, went to Catholic school. Uh, had your, you know, typical Hispanic foundation, you know, faith, family, food, mm-hmm. fiesta, those types of things that are really uh, core uh, to a Hispanic family. You know, education wasn't really instilled in the family simply because, you know, most 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 Hispanic families really focus on um, the mother staying at home, taking care right. of the children. And so, uh, you know, I went on to Bowie, went to Caprock my senior year. Um, you know, I, I married early my mm-hmm. senior year, had a baby early. Actually in high school? In high school, wow. yes, my senior year. And so I became a young mother, uh, unfortunately, I became a young single mother right. uh, two years later. So, you know, it, I really was determined to uh, teach my my child that, you know, how to be independent. And uh, growing up in a Hispanic home, you know, where the father is the breadwinner, I was I wanted to show her different. And so hmm. I worked extremely hard. I put myself through college. I uh, worked multiple jobs. And um, and, you know, I did that for many, many years. 
Where did you go to college? So I went to Amarillo College. I also went to a technical college, American Technical Institute. I took okay. business. I took um, um, IT, information technology. I um, It was a two-year. And so, you know, I'm not a big advocate of, I, I think degrees are great. Mm-hmm. However, I think it's more important to really focus in the area that you know, in the field that you're going to go to. And so, you know, early on, uh, I wanted to be a business owner. I just didn't know what that business was going to be. And so that's kind of how I transitioned into insurance. And and we'll talk about insurance and, and your business and all that stuff in, in a little bit. I, I want to dig a little bit into your, your family background. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Do you know what brought your parents to this area? Uh, yeah, so my mom and dad met in Hereford. Uh, my dad came from a really, really large family in New Mexico. Uh, they were farmers. Um, okay. And so 17 kids in the family. In your dad's family? In my dad's family. Where did he yeah. fall in line? Of oh, all he those was kids? he was close to the bottom, like number five. Wow, that's so, 17 is a lot. 17 is a lot. Catholic family, you know, um, they all were worked on the farm, of okay. course. You know, grandpa didn't have to hire workers because yeah, the kids worked. Yeah, that's why you have kids. So that's why you have kids. So, um, so he, you know, worked around the Hereford area, Vega, Demet, those areas. Uh, Mom's family came from South Texas. All right. My grandfather was actually born in Mexico, and um, he was two weeks old when they moved to South Texas. So she grew up in Elsa, Edinburgh, that area. Um, and then my grandfather um, was a migrant worker, and then he started his own, um, you know, uh, t- teams and started housing them and my grandmother would hmm. cook for them. And, and so then he grew his business. He had, uh, he had field workers in Arizona, New Mexico and Texas. And it was interesting because I told my mom, I said, you know, I don't think you really realize that grandfather, you know, grandpa was an entrepreneur. Yeah. You know, he was doing everything entrepreneurs do and would never have used that word. Would back never have then, used but... that word back then, but, but he truly was, you know, had the, had the spirit of an entrepreneur. Hmm. So that was, yeah, she just was like, wow. You're right. <laughs> and you said you went to Catholic school. Did you I go did. to Our Lady of Guadalupe? I did. I went to Our Lady of Guadalupe, you know, and it was interesting because um, now I hear, you know, talking to some of my friends that lived in that area that went to Sanborn, Glenwood, mm-hmm. they had this perception that kids that went to Our Lady were rich. Because it was a private school. Because it was right? a private school. Yeah. And so, you know, I they didn't realize that, you know, mom and dad were blue collar. My dad was the only worker. He was a machinist. Uh, mom stayed home. And so in order to be able to put five kids through Catholic school, she eventually started working in the cafeteria, okay. you know, and, and worked there until all of us were out. So, yeah. and, and there that, are a lot of, uh, people have a lot of maybe misconceptions about Catholic school, yeah. you know, nuns and strictness yeah. <laughs> and all that stuff. I, I haven't talked to anybody on the show yet that, uh, that went to Our Lady. And so okay. I, I want to hear about that. Like, are those are those ideas true? Is that something you experienced or was it different? Yeah. You know, that's a really good question. And as I look back, you know, I wanted to be a nun when I got older. I would even spend some time with the nuns in at St. Lawrence on mm-hmm. the weekends because I just, you know, I think the the faith aspect of it, you know, growing up, going to school, to church every, most days we went, most weeks we went twice, three times a week. So that foundation is really instilled. However, you know, there's a lot of, of, of fear uh, because you're really, the, the nuns tended to be a little strict mm-hmm. on the strict side. You couldn't talk to boys. You couldn't, 
which is wrong, you know? And so a lot of, a lot of that just really instilled fear, Okay. you know? Um, so I don't think that that's good. I, uh, some of us turned out normal, fortunately, <laughs> but, um, but you know, I can see how people wouldn't. Is it, was, yeah. was that a, a difficult transition going from a private Catholic school during your elementary years to Bowie? Yes. I mean, did, did that feel as dramatic as, as maybe it, it seems like it might yes, have Yes, it did. Because, you know, although uh, there just was a, a camaraderie between the students, the it was more family. We all lived in the same community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, family is huge in the Hispanic culture. It's all about family. It's all about, you know, doing things together. And then all of a sudden you're, and the majority of kids, if not 99.9% of them were Hispanic. Mm-hmm. You know, you speak the Spanish language, it's the culture's the same, the belief systems are the same, and then you go into this, you know, buoy, and it's very, very different. You yeah. have, we didn't, uh, you know, we didn't have the athletics exposure, which is a negative, in my opinion, um, that you have in public schools. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was a transition. It was a challenge. I want to go back to your your time going to Amarillo College mm-hmm. as a single mother mm-hmm. and as someone who's putting yourself through school. Yes. Tell me what that was like. So that was, you know, I always knew early on that I I just wanted to become something, you know, something, um, do more than what my mother did. I mean, she was a great mother. She was, my dad was a great provider. I remember as, as children, you know, we did our annual vacations, we did a lot of things, but I just knew that there was more, um, although I hadn't been exposed to that really. Um, I, uh, I just knew. And so I knew that I had to educate myself and, uh, it was a, a challenge as a single parent, a young mother. I relied heavily on my mother mm-hmm. to help me. I wasn't comfortable leaving my daughter with anybody and other than family, and that's what I did. And so fortunately, my mom was there, but there was times when I would, I would work and then I'd, you know, go to school in the evenings and then I'd repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, yeah. wash, repeat, you know, day after day after day. And so, uh, unfortunately, you know, raising a child on your own, uh, brings a lot of challenges, you know, and, um, and, but thankfully my mother and my, my family was there to help me. You, you said that you had sort of that bent toward entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Did you, when you were going to school, um, you know, looking to get a business degree of some mm-hmm. kind, did you know what that was going to look like? I mean, did you have sort of a plan or were you just... You know, absolutely not. I had no plan. I just, the only um, reference I had was Hispanic women and the way they lived. They took care of their kids. They made sure, you know, the meals were prepared. The house was always clean. Clothes was clean, you know, ironed, my mm-hmm. mother ironed for all of us. Um, and, and that's great, but I, that's not who I wanted to be. I wanted way more. Um, and I knew that going to school was the beginning of something. And so, um, I had a lot of, uh, pushback from my mom who mm-hmm. used to say, you know, you've got to get married and you can't do this on your own. And, and so that was, that made it very challenging. And so, in the Hispanic uh, culture, you'll see a lot of first-generation, you know, college graduates because of that. I mean, they don't really support that. Did you feel like you were being rebellious, or maybe well, more of a trailblazer? I mean, how did how did you I, think, I think about a little it? bit of both? Because you know, coming from uh, five siblings, I was the middle child, but I was always more outspoken. 
I was always the child that voiced my opinion. Um, you know, and in our culture, you speak, you talk back, you're disrespecting, mm-hmm. you know? And so I kind of went against the grain doing that. Um, but I just, I just felt like that's what I needed to do. And, um, and that as a, as an adult, I realized that that was the right thing to do, yeah. you know? And I remember having a conversation with my dad, um, who unfortunately he and my mother passed away last year, um, and letting him know that, you know, dad, cause he was so incredibly proud of me. He was proud of the fact that I was an entrepreneur, that I'd made it on my own, despite the adversity and all of that. And so he was, you know, would tell everybody this, you know, my my daughter's a business owner, you know, if you need insurance, call her, Mm -hmm. yada, yada, yada. And so, um, but, you know, I had a conversation with him and I let him know, you know, it's, it's good to express. It's good. It's, you know, you have to, you have to be comfortable with who you are. And, and, and it was really good because he was open-minded. He listened to me and, and, and that kind of closed a chapter. Okay. Tell me, so I, I know that you've ended up where you are today, Mm -hmm. um, owning your own business, um, insurance business, but Mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I don't want a resume, but like, tell me what your path was. I mean, how how did you go from not really knowing what you wanted, but knowing you needed an education to getting to this point today? Yeah. So, um, you know, I worked, um, multiple jobs going to college. Uh, I, I got a job at Anderson Merchandisers, which was Western Merchandisers at the time, which did a lot of work for Hastings. Did a lot of work. Walmart. Yes. Yes. So I, I worked in the IT department. I was an executive assistant, which I look back now and, and what a great experience for me because it really exposed me to a lot. You know, I was probably one of the only females in the department. I worked directly under, top executives. So I was, you know, uh, I would attend the board meetings. I would travel a lot. That gave me a lot of exposure to outside, um, you know, influences. And, um, and so I learned a lot, but one of the biggest lessons that I learned was that, you know, there's a lot of politics that goes on in Mm -hmm. corporate America and there's just a lot of negativity. Um, people are treated as numbers, not really, when you when you're when you're working for an organization that has that many people, you they don't really know your name, right? And so you know people matter, people matter. And so it was then that I began to kind of um, look for opportunities. I began to let people know that I was interested in you know doing something else. I started real estate classes at Amarillo College, All right. and then right before I was going to take the exam. A friend called and said, hey, listen, I know a guy that's looking for uh, someone in their, um, you know, organization. Uh, You're going to be, you know, essentially your own boss. Sounded great. And then when he said the word insurance, I kind of went, oh, because I had this perception of what insurance was. And so, but I went ahead and met with them, you know, and they were looking for someone bilingual. Um, Sounded great, you know unlimited amount of income, you set your schedule, almost sounded too good to be true. Mm -hmm. So I said, you know what, I will get my insurance license, I will do this. However, I'm going to do it on my terms. I don't want to recruit 10,000 people a month. You know, I don't want to do that. So eight, seven, eight months into it, I absolutely loved it. Okay. Uh, I was what year was that? Like timeline wise? This would have been, you... I've been in the business almost 20 years. So okay. this would have been about, you know, 19, 20 years ago. All right. So I, I loved it. And what I loved most about it was, yes, working my own schedule, um, the flexibility. 
I've always loved to, you know, serve in my community, whether it's my church, my community. And so it gave me the flexibility to be able to do that. I loved providing solutions for clients. I worked, um, I, I joined a, a Fortune 500 company, worked with them for about, uh, what, 15 years. I was one of their top salesmen in the Amarillo Panhandle area. Right. You know, a lot of what I did was recruiting, developing um, entrepreneurs. And it's a different mindset when you're working with 1099 versus yeah. an employee. Yes. So I learned very quickly that I needed to have, I needed some help. If I was going to be a mentor, I needed to have a mentor. And so I, you know, I've always been um, interested in, you know, just personal development. Always. I've been a reader all my life, uh, which has been a big part of my, my growth, you know, my learning. And so I, um, you know, I had read a book by John Maxwell called the 21 irrefutable laws. And, um, I followed John for, you know, a few years and decided, you know what, I love the values and the principles that John teaches. He was a pastor first and foremost. Mm -hmm. So all of his teachings were biblically based, which I absolutely loved and which aligned with, you know, with my values. And, and so, um, I began using his books and his teachings to develop my agents. About seven years ago, I made a decision to become an executive director for John Maxwell. Uh, it really gave me an opportunity to travel and do uh, transformational leadership in countries. So I went to, um, Paraguay and, okay. uh, talk about an experience, you yeah. know, and, and so anyway, it also gave me exposure to a lot of people globally, people I can call my friends today. So I've learned a lot from these individuals. Yeah. Tell me, tell me more about that because I, I, I think a lot of people, you know, there's, there's a, there's a line between having a successful business that is based in a place like Amarillo and then also having that broader experience that you can only get by by traveling outside of here, maybe by meeting people who don't live, live here or experiencing cultures that are different from ours. And I wonder what that Maxwell connection and the opportunities you've had from that, like how has that made you better at your business here? That's a really good question. I love that question because it's really given me an awareness of I can do so much more. Hmm. You know, my my word of the year, every year I come up with a word and my word of the year was proximity. Hmm. because because of the access that I had to all of these people, I was learning so much. And when you're outside of your comfort zone, you know, um, you know, a lot of people know me as my favorite, my favorite saying is do it afraid, you know, jump and then grow your wings on the way down. All right. Just do it. If it's in your heart, it's, you know, God has placed it there for a reason. And so um, it's the very thing that's going to, that's, that's, that's your calling. And so is it scary? Absolutely, it's scary. But how else are you going to know unless you you do it? So, you know, um, leaving Amarillo, traveling uh, really gave me, uh, like I said, an awareness of knowing that there was so much more that we can do uh, outside of our comfortable little boxes. What does that that training look like that you do uh, as an executive director with, with that alignment? I mean, are, are you training business people? Are you speaking to them about leadership yeah. techniques and things? So what I love about the John Maxwell team is that, you know, there's a lot of different lanes. They've got the speaking lane, coaching lane, mentorship, um, entrepreneurship. So what I did since I was involved in all of it and really have a passion for all of it, I, you know, studied all of them um, and became certified through John Maxwell. Uh, but you can, you can really focus on one lane and, uh, 
And so as an entrepreneur, I did a lot of, of entrepreneur training. I do speak. I'm a keynote speaker um, to some, you know, at some events. I was in 2010, I was a keynote speaker for uh, the NAFA, National Association of Insurance and Financial Advisors, mm-hmm. uh, convention in Seattle, Washington, with over 10,000 financial wow. agents and or financial advisors and insurance agents. So, um, so you, I love speaking um, at those events. However, that's not everything I do. I, I do, um, you know, have the ability to coach uh, groups, which I've done a little bit of. I've done one-on-one coaching. That's because I still run a business. I don't do that full time. Right. But perhaps that's something I may look at down the road. So tell me, tell me about your business as it looks today. I know there are a lot of people who they'll hear the word insurance and they think of their state farm agent or (laughs) their farmer's agent, you know, because that's their connection to it. I know that that's, that's not quite what you do. So tell me what it looks like, you know, with, within your sphere. Yes. Okay. So when I started in the insurance, I was working predominantly with what we call work site marketing. That's going into businesses, you know, teaching, educating, really it's education, you know, um, in the life and health. So, uh, Life and health is generally, you know, insurance, supplemental benefits, dental, vision, mm-hmm. uh, voluntary term, those types of benefits. Uh, PNC, which is your uh, insurance, you know, uh, car insurance, your house insurance, that's right. a total different insurance. It's a, a property and, you know, commercial. So I only work in the life and health space. Um, you know, I have, I created my uh, Burton Insurance Agency LLC about eight, nine years ago. Um, so now I operate as a broker, uh, which means I, you know, shop carriers. I shop rates for my, for my clients and, you know, provide, um, solutions that best fit them. So it's not a cookie cutter type, you know, proposal. It's, it's, it's customized for my clients. And health insurance is, you know, life insurance is, is, is fairly standard, uh, and, and has been relatively unchanged for a while. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of different options. I know health insurance is like always controversial. It's Mm -hmm. something that people are always frustrated with. Yes. Uh, It's very personal. And I I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that world and and maybe some of the challenges of the last few years, you know, with with people trying to find something that's affordable, something that covers the care that they need and, and how you deal with that part of it. Yeah, you know, there has been a lot of frustration in the last couple of years. Um, the last, the landscape in insurance just completely changed, you know, from Obamacare, where a lot of doctors were pulling out of the industry altogether um, because there was no guarantees. Mm-hmm. And um, so a lot of employees were losing their benefits. I I mean, I, I came across employees that had cancer and all of a sudden they couldn't see their cancer doctor because they weren't in the network. And so there was a lot of frustration. So really what it boiled down to was just education. You know, what is the difference between a PPO versus an HMO? What exactly does your plan cover? Um, What exactly is a lot of employees have no idea what, what a deductible even means. What is out of pocket? What is, you know, what's covered, what's not. And so I always say, you know, we're educators. We just educate, you know, uh, answer questions. Um, we give people the peace of mind of feeling comfortable. And I do have a lot of Hispanic clients as well. So I'm able to speak the language, which obviously brings down the barriers mm-hmm. and, and you know, the comfort level um, to educate them. Um, so it's, yeah, it's uh, for a long time, carriers stopped 
providing um, individual policies, health insurance policies, but it seems that the carriers are coming around and so things are changing. And that's, that's one thing, I, I guess one complaint that I've started hearing more of is what a strange system we live in that most health insurance is provided by an employer. You know, when when jobs change all the time and so your insurance is changing all the time and that, that that's sort of unique to the mm-hmm. United States, the model that we have. Yes. And I, I wonder if you're seeing like some movement maybe apart from that or away from that. I, I am seeing some. As a matter of fact, I had a conversation with a friend just yesterday who um, has been a broker for about 30 years in Oklahoma and he was talking about just, just some new models that are have been you know introduced because of the challenges and so, yes, um, a lot of people feel comfortable with the traditional, you know, uh, models. And so they, what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, when they lose their, when they quit their job or they get fired or whatever, you know, you do have the option of COBRA, which mm-hmm. is expensive, expensive, but it is an option. Uh, but people tend to lose their benefits. They lose their life insurance. They lose their disability policy and, and perhaps they're not uh, portable so mm-hmm. again, it's about educating them, letting them know, you know, this this is exactly what you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. We we talked earlier. You you mentioned the emphasis lately here in Amarillo mm-hmm. on uh, the barrio neighborhood mm-hmm. and the Hispanic community, and you know, elevating it after you know for a for a lot of years, decades, it it probably flew under the radar. You know, maybe the the community was. Uh, didn't quite get the attention it needed. The neighborhood fell into some disrepair. I, I wonder if you could talk as somebody who still serves that community, who still um, is is a, a leader there. Like, what are some of the, uh, I guess, the hopeful things that you're starting to see? Yeah. So, you know, the Barrio Neighborhood Planning Committee um, got together and Teresa Kennedy kind of spearheaded this. I think it's probably been about 11 years mm-hmm. ago. I think it was in 2010. Former guest on this podcast. Okay, fact. good, yeah. good. I'll have to listen yes. to her. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, she formed a, a coalition of leaders that, you know, uh, various leaders um, from executive directors to the Wesley, you know, the Wesley Liz um, and some of the people that have lived there, including myself. You know, a lot of people don't realize that the barrio became, you know, it's been in existence as long as Amarillo has. Right. 19, yeah. I think it was 1889. Um, so it was a big um, part of what allowed, you know, uh, workers. A lot of the blue collar workers came from uh, the barrio, you know, and then, of course, expanded uh, the blueprint. But I, you know, I, I grew up across the street from the Santa Fe train tracks and mm-hmm. there was no fence at the time. And so these migrants would, you know, these people would jump off of the train and knock on our, you know, door and dad would pull clothes out of his closet and mom would make burritos and feed them. Mm. And that's kind of where my servant heart came from. A hundred percent, I believe is just that, just that passion for these people, you know, but I don't think a lot of people realize that the Santa Fe was, you know, railroad was very instrumental. Right. It was probably the first I mean, that, employer. Yeah, that's why Amarillo is here. That's how Amarillo railroad exactly. passed through here. And then most of the workers for the railroad yes. um, ended up coming from Mexico in a lot of cases exactly. because the railroad brought them here because they knew right. how to build a railroad. That's you know? right. And, you know, uh, when we moved into our house on Garfield, uh, there was a lot of little houses behind our house. And I just remember dad just tearing them down and he built onto the house. But it wasn't until most recently that I found out that, you know, these people that would jump off of the trains uh, would 
build their little establishments in these blocks, which a lot of people still live in, in these blocks. You'll see the same family households in take up an entire block and they would just house there and work and, you know, help each other. Mm -hmm. And, and it just became community with your family members. And so it's, it was very interesting that I didn't find that out till later. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. not something yeah. you understood as a kid. I didn't understand. But... I just, yeah, we had fun cause we played in them until dad tore them down, but you know, <laughs> I had no idea. The, the thing that stuck with me, you know, Ed, I talked to you obviously for our, uh, the cover story in Brick and Elm yes. recently and, and, you know, a conversation with with another gentleman in in that article was about how, you know, if you look at Amarillo, if you look at the buildings and the streets and the railroad and all the infrastructure, like so much of the workforce for that was a Hispanic community because they came here, they arrived yeah. here, you know, with with all those trades and and with all those abilities, and that um, you you think about what Amarillo is today, it was it was built in many parts by immigrants from Mexico. Yes. Uh, and I, I found that fascinating because that work ethic, you know, I, I continue to find that as, as such a central part of that culture, but one that like we don't talk about very much or we don't think about very much. That's right. I wonder if you found that like just oh. growing up there and, and being exposed to the people that your dad worked with. A hundred percent, you know, and that's something in our culture that is, um, we're super proud of our work ethic, you know, our work ethics and the fact that we're, very community oriented. We're helpers, we're givers. Um, we work together, we collaborate. It ex it's exciting now to see some of my friends, you know, Mercy Murguia mm -hmm. uh, and some of these people that have moved on because we've, there's, there's so many uh, young folks that don't, that are fearful of having a voice. And I do believe that that stems from the upbringing that prevents them from becoming a contributor in our community, in our city. And so, yes, um, a lot of these workers, um, you know, uh, Hispanics have a lot of passion. And so when they do something, they do it with a lot of passion and love. And I saw that growing up in our community. We would all, you know, have each other's back, you know, and they're, it's just, it's just the way it was. And um, yeah, I remember growing up, you know, around Alamo Park and I took sewing classes at Wesley and my friends were all from Wesley and we ate the sack lunches and mm -hmm. we all just kind of had these little clicks, you know, and, and it, it's, it's pretty interesting when you, when you look back and you, and you see the common uh, denominators and just the, you know, just the characteristics are pretty much the same, you know, hard work, um, lots of hard work, mm -hmm. right? That's what our parents instilled. No exceptions, you know, no, no excuses. <laughs> I, I want to take the opportunity to ask you this. I, I know that um, you are uh, a woman in business. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and here in Amarillo, you know, very much so, I've, I've seen a lot of growth in that area the last few years. But for a long time, like that wasn't always a story that you found. Mm -hmm. um, and then especially within the Hispanic culture, it is a little bit even more of an outlier. Yeah. And so I, I wonder if you feel as someone who has navigated all that, who has found success in that, um, if, if you feel like someone in a position of mentorship or in a mm -hmm. position of leadership that, that there are, you know, young girls looking at you and thinking, oh, well, you know, if, if, if Helen Burton can do this and I can do this. And if, yes. if that's something that kind of drives you forward. Absolutely. I've, I'm just a big believer in mentorship and having a coach. And that's one of the reasons why I chose John Maxwell, because he's a godfather of leadership, you mm -hmm. know, and I just felt that that would give me exposure to 
the best of the best. So I, in turn, want to give back. You know, um, I've been a coach and a mentor to some of the young ladies right out of college locally. Uh, Ruby Moreno, who was the executive right. director for the Amarillo Hispanic uh, Chamber of Commerce, was one of them. And so I think that's extremely important. And that's also giving back to the community um, because it can definitely, you know, John Maxwell wrote a book uh, called Failing Forward. But if we can prevent, because we learn from our mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he says the missing link is just the evaluating, evaluating what you did right and what you did wrong and really just tweaking. And if we can prevent some of our young um, entrepreneurs, we are young, you know, business uh, minded individuals and ha- prevent them from making some of the mistakes that we can, this can catapult their career. And so, yes, I'm a big, big, big believer. How do you feel about the future of Amarillo, whether it's business community, the barrio neighborhood, like any of those things? I, I know you think a lot about that mm-hmm. and some of the, the volunteer work that you do. Yeah. So, you know, I'm excited because there's an awareness of um, a lot of agencies are really looking at, as the Barrio Neighborhood Planning Commission is, uh, you know, focusing on on the changes that are taking place. So is the city. So are a lot of leaders within our community. Laura Street was, you know, very instrumental in our fundraising, mm-hmm. and just a lot of people, um, are, you know, understand the importance of that. Um, I just feel really good about where we're headed. Um, you know, I serve on the board of the Emerald Area Foundation. Um, it's really given me uh, exposure to a lot of these leaders that are um, innovative thinkers and um, and just they all have the same um, desire to grow Amarillo, to make it better than it is. And, and that's exciting to me, just to be a part of that. Hey, Amarillo is sponsored this week by Lazy Boy Home Furnishings in Amarillo. You know Lazy Boy as a national brand. You've heard of their recliners, but some of its stores are independently owned and operated. And the one in Amarillo is owned by the Hawkins family. They live right here in town. And Lazy Boy offers a whole lot more than just recliners. They have customizable furniture so you can design a look that fits you with special financing and products to fit every budget. Almost everything they sell is American made. So visit Amarillo's locally owned Lazy Boy Home Furnishings today at 3636 Sonsi. Okay, I'm back with Helen Burton. Helen, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon on the WT campus. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes around eight examples of fossilized bison skulls showing the development of the North American bison. You can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, so eight straight questions. I'm going to start with one that I've asked uh, most of my guests over the past few months. What's one thing the pandemic or 2020 or now into 2021 um, has revealed to you about local people? You know, local people are resilient. They're community-oriented. They are um, servant-minded. They kind of collaborated, came together, and... uh, pivoted. You know, in my industry, we went 100% remote. And so really that gave me an opportunity to, um, you know, to work from home when my mother was in hospice on her Mm. last day. So that was a silver lining for me. And so I made a decision not to go back to having 100 agents in my office that I'm, you know, running appointments with all the time. So it really changed the landscape of of business. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to hear more about that then from you as 
as a business owner. Mm-hmm. You know, so many, whether it's it's a corporation, whether it's a small entrepreneurial venture, you know, people found, hey, we can do this from home. Yeah. Maybe we don't need to be spending all this money on overhead or on these offices. That's right. Or I mean, did did that sort of transform how you look at even the structure of what you do? Yes. And I realized that I can take my business, you know, global via Zoom. Hmm. And so a lot of, you know, some of my broker friends, financial advisors say, hey, I've been doing it for years. So this was nothing new to me. Um, I didn't have to make any changes to my business, but a lot of us did. Hmm. And so um, convenience is everything. So working from home um, was was nice. (laughs) What does this area have too much of? You know, um, I was recently um, a big part of the Festival Por La Vida here in Amarillo, um, working alongside um, some amazing people. Pat Davis was one of them. He and I kind of facilitated this entire event. And I noticed in the process of making appointments with churches, church leaders, mm. we have a lot of churches, <laughs> a lot of churches. That is Not true. that that's a bad thing. Churches are great. However, I, I realized that a lot of churches aren't working together. Okay. And so I, I think this, this particular event uh, brought a lot of churches together. And, um, and it just, it was a beautiful thing to see that and to really be a part of that. And that's always that's always been interesting to me that you have churches that, that sort of divide up into you know teams, denominations, all those things. But yeah, you're you're right that they all have the exact same goal, but there's not always a lot of cooperation in pursuit of that goal. Yes, and when we shared the vision of this event, and really, it's their goal. You know, the old, the end result is really to bring hope and encouragement to our city and and revival and, and change, they were excited mm-hmm. to jump on board. So it really put aside, you know, religion and and beliefs and all of this uh, that that really can get in the way. So that I, I would say that. What does this area not have enough of? I don't think we have enough uh, young leaders stepping up. Uh, you know, you asked the mentorship question. I think a lot of we need more people stepping up into these roles. A lot of the organizations, the boards that I've served on, you know, it's the same people. Mm-hmm. And so I think we need more uh, young people stepping up, um, putting fear aside. Uh, some of us need to walk alongside them, mentor them, and uh, and give them the courage and the confidence confidence that they need to become a leader. I'm always struck by that. I've, I've seen, you know, I, I hear from somebody on a certain board or I see that somebody's on a board and I'm like, that, that guy's on this board and yes. that other board. And you know, it's, it's the same, you know, retired leaders yes. who are no longer working full time. So now they're very generously giving their time to all these different boards, but it is a lot of the same pool of people and you're not going to get the ideas and the energy and the innovation that comes from from somebody who's younger. That's exactly right. And so their voice matters. And Mm -hmm. so that's something that I'm always letting them know is that a great board is, is diversified. Your experiences matter, your voice matters. And, and so just do it, you know, again, do it afraid. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? You know, I, Amarillo has the friendliest people. Um, I've met a lot of people that don't, aren't from here, but they stay here because of how friendly people are. Uh, Amarillo people are givers. They give of their time, they give of their resources, their money, you know, and so 
Amarillo is, is, is full of, you know, kind and generous people. Did you ever think about leaving? I'm sure you had yes, opportunities to. Absolutely. And I had opportunities to leave, but you know, I realized as I got older, Amarillo was a great place. We're central, you know, in my career, I travel a lot. So I'm able to, you know, experience other places, but I just realized we're central. We have direct uh, flights mm -hmm. to a lot of places. You know, we're close to New Mexico, Oklahoma, Colorado. We're in a good place. What's your favorite street in Amarillo? You know, I love what has taken place downtown, uh, Polk Street. You know, mm -hmm. I love all the changes that have taken place. It kind of has a bigger city feel mm -hmm. um, than, you know, Amarillo. So I I think Polk Street right now. All right. What's your favorite local restaurant? That's a tough one. Um, I You know, I love Mexican food, and I would have to say... The gorditas at El Tejavan are my favorite right now. Okay, that's very specific. I think a lot of people would agree with that. Is is that as someone who grew up, you know, with with your mom cooking and, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing, like is the flavor and the taste and everything involved with places like El Tejavan, like is is that feel authentic to you? Is that absolutely? And and that's really key is the authenticity. You know, we it brings back a lot of memories. Mom's gone, you know, and so keeping the traditions and, you know, all of that alive is very, very important to me, but their gorditas are a lot like my mom's gorditas. Right. So that's good to know. What's your favorite local coffee shop? That's a tough one because I, you know, I'm closest to roasters. I go there a lot. However, I love, uh, palace coffee. Mm -hmm. I love that, um, you know, they have the meeting rooms that we have access to. And so I've utilized those a lot, but I, you know, I, I visit Roasters more. It's closer to my office. Again, it's about convenience. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a coffee. Yeah, I love coffee. Well, now there's a palace right there across from Roasters. I know. Georgia, so I I'm... know. So, yeah. All right. And the last question is, when was the last time you visited the Big Texan? Oh, so I visited the Big Texan uh, early this year. Probably, I would have to say March. I serve on the bridge. Um, and we have our Heroes and Legends event every year. And we use the Big Texan. So we, uh, the board of directors has a tasting, you know, at the, at the, at the Big Texan. And so that I, I was there for the big, for the tasting. Okay. Uh, but I love their food and uh, they've got a lot of great things going on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. That concludes the eight straight questions, Helen. I like to close by asking my guest to endorse something. So what's one thing that you would like listeners to know about or to experience? You know, I serve on so many boards and I'm so involved in, in a lot of things. This was a- You're one of those people that's on all the boards. Yes, right I know. This is a really tough one. But I have to uh, talk about Panhandle Gibbs because, you know, it's a global philanthropic um, movement of generosity. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. And so, you know, I have been chosen as, as an ambassador this year. This is the first year that they do anything like that. And so- um, really it's about educating people, letting them know, you know, um, this event alone, um, brings in, you know, it, there's 177 organizations, nonprofits right. that are yeah. involved. And so that's a lot, you know, it gives them the market exposure. Last year they raised $3.5 million during a pandemic, yeah, exactly. which is amazing. Right. And so, you know, it's just really an, op an opportunity to give to the, you know, these nonprofits that you have passion for. And part of the amplification fund is just additional funds that are given to these organizations. So, um, you know, it's uh, November 22nd is the big kickoff. 
the campaign runs from November 22nd uh, through the 30th of November. And so, you know, I'm very excited about about this year's Panhandle Gives. And that that's what I love about it is the amplification of it, that, you know, the, the dollar you give to your favorite organization goes further that week. You know, Amen. Yes. All right. Well, we will keep that on our radar. Helen Burton, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Helen for the interview. Also to Angelina Marie for editing the episode, for taking out my stumbles. And uh, there were a lot of them. I'm also grateful to this week's sponsors, Lazy Boy Home Furnishings, Blue Handle Publishing, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum, who sponsors eight straight every week. I'm so grateful for that. This podcast exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Heyamarillo's executive producers include Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Chris Zelda, Barbara and Jim Witten, Jess Heredia, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Wilson Lemieux, Patrick Burns, and Wes Reeves. This has been episode 218. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.